a listener production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. What's it like to be a committed carnivore in today's world of meat-free Mondays? Well, this man has been 22 years in business and he's still going strong. La Luna Bistro on Rathdown Street is a local institution with a loyal band of meaty followers. He also now owns Bouvier Bar, so keeping busy. He has stayed the course in a notoriously difficult industry for good reason. He's not someone that swayed easily or moved off course. Adrian Richardson is a straight talker. It's what we call an Aussie larrikin. He's a chef through and through and makes no apologies for it. Adrian is an advocate for me and everything that goes with it. He's also been known to torment the squeamish now and then on social media. He's got his own podcast on the Listener Network where you can master the basics of cooking techniques. And it's called Cooking with Richo. A trigger warning on this one, we talk about the killing of animals and it might be a bit graphic for some people. So if that's uncomfortable for you, maybe switch to another episode. With that said, please welcome chef, restaurateur, author, TV personality, and now fellow podcaster, Adrian Richardson. Right, Adrian Richardson, (laughs) thanks for coming in. I feel all kind of warm and glowy when I see you. You remember Boys Weekend all those years ago? I do, I do. We travelled the countryside and we behaved ourselves uh, and we had a lot of fun. And, and then we would get somewhere, let's cook something. Let's cook something. That was the line. And I always remember you, yeah, you always drank a little bit too much. Weren't we told by the, the exec producer to this actually wasn't a Boys Weekend? Exactly. And, and you guys have got to behave yourselves, no drinking, no carry on. And we all said, yeah, it's, it's a great idea. Then Gary goes over to the bar fridge, opens the bar fridge, Anyone want a beer? Yeah, there we go. We're gone. Yeah, but I never got the tequila out, which I think was your <laughs> that was your finish to the night. We shared a couple of rooms, didn't we? And I'd get home quite late and had sand everywhere and we had <laughs> Yeah, we 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 had a good time. And actually I think actually that's when I really first got to know you. I think that I mean, I'd heard of you always in in the business and what you were doing and yep. you know, the reputation you were establishing. But when they stuck these four oddballs together. Yep. It was that was the first learning of Adrian Richardson. I well, think. well, it was you and I representing the Union Jack and the Queen, and and the other and the, uh, the French guy and the Spanish guy. I remember, you know, that. Do you remember um, we had a little game of football on the beach, <laughs> and we got these two. Not that we're similar body shapes anymore. I think you're in a much better shape than I am. But we, we were short. Um, what would you call it? Boxy. Um, and <laughs> if, if you look at a smeg fridge and you put our put us in front of it, we'd have the same outline. Same outline. Yeah. So you got these two guys playing what was essentially very handsome Europeans. You know the, mm. the you know the tall and buff Miguel and the suave Frenchman, and they were shit at football, weren't they? And we outscored them like five goals to nothing. And in the end, they had to fix it so that they got a view of them scoring a goal. That's right. I, I think it was the version of football that we played. <laughs> Because it was a cross between rugby, rugby. and soccer. Yeah, they didn't because know of our was. physique, we were yeah. tackling them. And apparently there's no tackling in that I round didn't ball game. That. See, yeah. I, my PE teacher when I was at school was a, a Welsh rugby player. Yeah. And uh, his only advice in terms of football tactics, and, and when we're talking football, we're not talking Aussie rules football, we're talking mm. soccer, was I was on the left wing and if in doubt, nobble them. <laughs> Which still is, I go... Why didn't you just teach me to pass? I mean, that would have been helpful. He probably looked you up and down and said, just, just, just nobble, nobble yeah, yeah, just And nobble. I remember being at some rough school and nobbling the guy, you know, on, <laughs> so I'm on left wing and I nobbled the guy off the field, which basically just means rough-handed him off the 
thing. And uh, I think I got a yellow card and all the kids on the side were going, like that. And I go, looked at Mr. Sayer and said, you know, thumbs up. And he was like, well done, son. <laughs> Great for rugby, not for football. Let's get on track. Because mm. the first question I wrote down, which we thought was lovely, because this is your catch cry, why does meat love salt and why does salt love meat? Because they go together. I mean, people are always asking for tips from chefs and, and, and I cook a lot of meat. And, and you know what's the most important thing? Put some bloody salt on the meat. And, and a great way of trying it is, is cook two steaks, season one up like a chef would with, you know, bucket loads of salt, more salt than you possibly think it would, would, would need, and then leave the other one completely unseasoned. Cook them the same way next to each other and then let them rest and then tuck into them. And you will agree with me, and, and I'm sure you, Gary, that salt loves meat and meat loves salt. They go together so well. Where, where did it come from? I started saying that years ago, and um, it sort of stuck every time I was, you know, on, on Good Chef, Bad Chef, or any time I was seasoning meat, I would always say it to sort of drum into people that you've got to put salt with it. And next thing you know, people were yelling it out to me, uh, <laughs> and then I put it on T-shirts. I sell these T-shirts all over the world, you know, it's Salt Loves Meat T-shirts. I've got them on salt shakers in the restaurant, and people knock them off. I buy thousands of the things, and people knock them off from the <laughs> they restaurant. They steal salt shakers it, from your restaurant. They do, they do, but they're, they're, they're little, they're ones like little uh, paper cardboard ones with the slogan on the side of it. They're there for people to take and we like them to take it because you'll have it in your um you know in your pantry and you'll use it and you'll remember us it's like a business card yeah so um, you remember you got to book uh, la luna and go back for a well-seasoned steak is that la luna bistro in uh, oh, 320 rat down street 320 rat down yeah, street yeah, i think one. that's the one so it's a good rem- it's a not a bad idea yeah. but the, it was there a bit of shock value that you you know obviously being on good chef bad chef the whole premise of the thing you being the bad chef is not that you're an incompetent chef but that you lean on the side of all the n- all the good naughty stuff. things in life, you know, where you go too much salt, too much butter, too much oil, and you're kind of playing that up a little bit. Well, but that's a bit of your character, isn't exactly, it? exactly. I mean, I look down the barrel of the camera, and we'll just put a little bit of butter in, you know, as I put another little bit, yeah, and then another little grams. bit, and then another little bit, and yeah. and that's the job. I mean, as a chef, we're not we're not uh, nutritionists, we're not uh, health professionals. We don't care how long you live. Our job is to make it tasty and delicious. You know, if you walk out the door and, and fall over and, and cark it, I don't care. You know, as long as you've had a great meal, you enjoyed that last meal on earth. It yeah, was, uh, go, it was Jesus, as you're lying there looking at a fading uh, background. Oh, geez, that's the, the, that's the bit of steak. steak you think, oh, that steak was great as your heart's sort of collapsing. Does its final uh, beat. <laughs> I tell people now that um, that I've actually done some renovation to, to, to the restaurant, and if you do feel your heart sort of slowing down a little bit and you're short of breath and, you you know, these are the symptoms of a heart attack. There's a little button under the table. If you press that button, an oxygen mask will drop from the ceiling. You take a couple of drags and you can keep on going. How's your own cholesterol? Just out of curiosity. I'm, a- I'm fine. I don't eat as much crap as people think, you know. <laughs> um, I, I try and eat really well. I've got three boys, so I'm, yeah. you know, three fit and healthy boys, so I'm trying to eat pretty well. And Michelle's always, you know, keeping an eye on, on what I eat. Which is your wife. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't eat as much. I believe the family have high cholesterol, you know, slightly higher cholesterol if you go get a, get a reading of it, but that, that's a normal thing. And and all of my my grandparents have lived into their nineties. You know, I'll probably break, break that mold, but um, they've all lived into their nineties, so I, I'm I'm not concerned. So you're, at all. you're you're fine by that, and you love the shock value. I mean, I think that in the past, there's been odd moments on Instagram where I've gone, oh, Richard. <laughs> Push the envelope. <laughs> Pushing the envelope, just to just to you know. And that, again, part of your character where you want to press some buttons and see what reaction you get. Is that right? I know. Everything's so vanilla. 
you know, I go through Instagram and I have a look at social media and everyone's doing the same thing. And, you know, I'll, I'll think of something. I think the latest one was when I was starting up my chimney. I, I needed some air in it. So I got my leaf blower. And I don't have a normal leaf blower. It's like a double battery pack turbocharged one. <laughs> and I got the thing. It was blowing everywhere. And, I mean, I got a lot of – I love that stuff, you know. And it was the toga and the cigar and the cognac. I mean, I, I, for me, it's just – you know, that's interesting to me. The rest of the stuff is just, yeah, 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 it's all vanilla. But if I can do something that uh, makes you laugh, makes you laugh, makes you smile, and and you say, oh, that Richo, oh, he's done it again. To me, that's what I like. Do you have a loyal band of followers or do you still get odd people that just get in there and, you know, troll just uh, because? Oh, I get a few trolls. I do have um, the, uh, the Secret Meat Facebook group, there's five and a half thousand of them and they post only pictures of meeting their dinners and stuff. So I do comment on that and that popped up somewhere and I found them. It's like, oh, my God. And when I actually approached them and said, because it, it's on, on the Facebook thing, it says this Facebook uh, site is inspired by Adrian Richardson and all the things he cooks. Um, and I got on it and said, hi, I'm Adrian. I'm really, you know, I'm really excited to be. And they were saying, you piss off, you know, it, it, it's, it's not you. Yeah, it's not for you. <laughs> Please, it like is me, you know. It's not for you. It's yeah. for the fans of. I like that. Exactly. So I've got, I've got a few of those people, meat lovers, and I get them yelling out to me and you know at the windows of cars and things, and, and they yell out, salt loves meat, meat loves salt. But there's also a few of the vegans and the, um, you know, that get upset with me when I say things, and, and because they get upset, I might say more things and wind them up even more. I love them. They're fantastic because they usually start off with a lot of uh, very serious, like a swearing and abuse. And we love, you know, if you want to have a conversation, love to have a conversation. I love those people a lot. <laughs> they're, they're my special friends. <laughs> Can you give us an example? Well, um, I run a, a suckling pig dinner as um, part of the Food and Wine Festival. Mm. And a couple of years ago, I had 40 um, animal activists that came and uh, barricaded the restaurant. You know, or that all everyone had arrived and they were around the outside. They had screens of um, the slaughterhouses. You know what happens in slaughterhouses? They had these dead Hang baby on a minute, they had screens. Well, you mean like TV screens? screens. Oh, TV, TV screens. TV screens. So not a printed picture of Barry the Duck, no. but a a TV screen. Oh, a TV screen oh, with 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 what happens setup. with the slaughter. And I had a hundred. That's AV, Adrian. They have commissioned uh, uh, pyrotechnics and AV for your uh, your event. I was so excited. Finally, you know, they were they were demonstrating at the front of my restaurant because of me. I, was, I <laughs> nearly brought a tear to my eye, Gary. So I went out and, and, you know, had a bit of a chat with them and they were just, they didn't want me at all anywhere near them and they were all upset. And I said, guys, you know, really, whatever you want to do, just go for it. You know, I'll, I'll behave myself if you guys do. And then I said, look, I just want to let you know there's 115 people inside my restaurant that have come here for Suckling Pig. I wouldn't want to get between them and their suckling pigs. So just to let you know what's going to happen at the start. And they were around Committed the Committed carnivores, oh, I think they're called. Yeah. Oh, just, yeah oh, my, my, Your lot, yeah. Yeah, we, we check their meat credentials when they make a booking. So uh, <laughs> so they, these people were around the outside and they were getting a little bit ruckus and, and they were taking a lot of photos of my guests and they were starting to get a little bit tense. So I just rang the coppers up and um, and in walks this, into the restaurant walks this big strapping bloke. He scared me when he walked in. And he walks in and says, Richo, oh, blood. He love you. I'll get rid of these scallywags. So all these coppers came and got rid of them all. So um, yeah, it was, it was great. So they're wow. the types of people I get, you know, quite often. And then they'll troll me on social media. But yeah, you make fun of it. But when you re when you rewind just for a second and go, I think you, you said something along the lines of, you know, this is great. You know, it was it at that moment we go, oh, for God's sake, I've got 120 people coming in and <laughs> no. Well, for me, it was like, what's going to happen? It was like. Uh, 
I just was, because around that time- Because uh, it compromises the night, right? It does. It puts a little bit of a, a sour taste to it, but I was able to put a positive. So you've got to either, you either panic, you've got 115 people in the restaurant, plus all the staff that are all, you know, just nervous. So you can either latch onto those nerves and become anxious, or, or you can do what I do. Hey, let's have a great time. Let's yeah. party with these people. And, um, you know, and then everyone hopefully feeds off that energy and, and you make it work out. Yeah. So you try and keep it positive. And that's probably being, being a leader or- being, you know, in front, you've got to sort of guide everyone and keep everyone going in this, in, you know. In, and you're in, smiling as you say it. So exactly. you did have fun, didn't you? <laughs> did you had fun. Because there, there was a restaurateur, was he in uh, Canada? I think it was Antler. Yes. Remember that one? Yes. And uh, he had uh, activists, animal activists outside his restaurant and they were really um, pulling his business down. I mean, he went from fairly busy to nothing. But then the opposite happened where it captured the – uh, the attention of the press, and then all of a sudden he's got queues outside the door and, and a booking sheet as long as you're armed because people went, nah, this is not right. Because what he said was, and he was Antler, obviously, is the mm. is the name of the restaurant because he was a hunter. So he was a nose-to-tail, you know, proper, you know, out hunting and then putting that on his restaurant. And he said, I'm actually opposite to every other meat business that's on this street. And I think there were a couple of butchers. Why aren't you protesting outside their establishments and chosen mine. And at one stage he took a leg, I think, of, of maybe venison <laughs> and he just went he, and deliberately, I mean, what a provocateur, he, he, right at the front window where all the activists were out waving their banners, he butchered it up. He butchered it, then went and cooked it and then sat at the front and, and ate, ate it. it. And it was the the clip of that that really sort and of... And it went viral. Yeah, and, and rightly so. I mean, you know, we, we eat animals and we do and we have done for years. And if you choose not to eat animals, that's fine. Half of my family are vegetarians and have been for... 60, 70 years, you know, so mm. I, I respect it. But don't come and bludgeon me over the head with it, you know. Yeah. It's just, I'm not interested. And the more you do that, the more I'm going to eat meat <laughs> and enjoy it and, and cook it. So, Well, I suppose the reason I ask that question, because as, as much as you have fun with it and people see that as, as a provocation, is that underneath it, how do you actually feel about it, which you've given us a little insight to. So when you, when you kind of dig into that, what are your thoughts on meat and consumption of meat? And, you know, those suckling pigs, for example, which people go, oh, they're just little babies. They are. They are little babies and they're delicious little babies. And when you roast them in the oven and the crackling forms on the outside of it, thin shards of caramelite, crispy Glass crackling, like. and you can see the fat bubbling inside them. They're just a beautiful thing to eat. And as far as I'm concerned, we breed them to eat. And as long as they live a good life up until that last you know, second when the lights go out, I'm fine with that. And you know, we roast the whole thing and we eat the whole thing. I've got no problems with that at all. I think when I was 13, I might have told you this story years ago. We had a farm in Gisborne. Um, Dad got the gun. We had sheep on the property. He said, okay, shoot that sheep over there. I shot it. And we got it. We um, scun it and gutted it. We hung it up in the in the cellar for a couple of days and then we butchered it and we ate it. And Dad said, because he was brought up as a vegetarian, he, he said, that's where meat comes from. You know, if you can kill it, eat it and and give it respect, you know, because we looked after it, that's where meat comes from. And, and if you're going to eat meat, that's what it's about. And yeah. and I have no misconceptions at all. I spend a lot of time in slaughterhouses. You know, that's part of what I do for work. And, you know, as long as it's done properly, there's no cruelty involved, which is, which is it, it's not in anyone's interest to be cruel to an animal if you're going to eat it. The meat's terrible if you're cruel to the animal. It just doesn't work. So, you know, you try and do the right thing and then enjoy the mm. meat and eat the whole thing. I wonder just as you're saying that and the passion and the care that you take in the final preparation, but from, you know, from ground up whether those activists think about that and activists you, activists think about their own 
uh, meat is murder. You know, technically it's not because murder is is the the killing of a human being. So it's mm. not murder. It's, it's, this is the thing that they. How can you kill an animal? You know, how can you eat it? And I saw, I've I've thought about it a lot, and it's like, well, if you've got that argument, well, would you take that argument to the indigenous communities around the world? You know, in Australia. So if you've got that argument, we shouldn't eat meat. We shouldn't. Well, then, are you going to go to an Aboriginal, you know, who in, in, in outback and still living their 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 regular, hunter forager? Yeah, they go for a little. Um, they go for a walk and they kill a kangaroo and they they uh, teach the young ones that their their traditional ways of 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 you know hunting and gathering. And are you going to tell them that they can't do it? You know, to me, it it just doesn't make sense. You know, and I understand some of the the argument uh, with 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 factory farming and, you know, the ethical questions around that. And, yeah, I sort of I get that part of it. But I think by coming to me and trying to bludgeon their their thing into me, it's a lost cause, you know. If they sit down with me and have a talk to me about what they're, you know, about factory farming and I've got a lot of opinions and, and you know, it's up to people like us, Gary, you know, to, to, to be able to tell people and we can tell people, hey, you know, go for the free-range pork, go for the free-range chicken, you know. When you buy eggs, go for the uh, The expensive farm. ones, the ones you, Exactly. Yeah. Give them the money and, and we can support them. But don't stand around my restaurant and tell everyone you shouldn't eat suckling pig and have uh, frozen baby pigs on a platter you know, to try and upset everyone. I went out there and I said to the guy, if you give me that thing, I'm going to roast it and I'll show you how bloody good it is. Oh, you know? they actually had a frozen... Oh, I had a couple of them. Oh, know? they had a couple of yeah, suckling said, pigs. Well, that, to me, that's a waste, you know. <clears throat> Let's roast it and eat it. That's, it's true. Hmm. You've got some opinions on it, as you said, about, you know, factory farming. What what are they? I mean, let's talk about, because there's an ugly side of the business and and actually a few of the guests that we've had over the last couple of years, I mean, particularly Matthew Evans, for example, that wrote a book called Thinking About Meat, was talking about vegetarians particularly don't understand the murder that happens in their name. I'm not sure if that's the right phrase, Matthew, I apologise. But he basically said farming is a gruesome business. So if you, for example, if you've got a a whole field of soybeans, there's a certain amount of pest control, for example, birds, rodents, insects, that has to happen, otherwise those soybeans don't grow. And he said there's a lack of understanding on the whole about the kind of gruesome nature of what happens on a farm, whether it's growing vegetables or whether it's rearing uh, animals. Oh, it, it, it is. I mean, we genetically uh, improve these animals to make sure that they come up to uh, up to speed really quickly. And a chicken is a great example. Mm. We knew more about the DNA of a chicken than we did about humans up until about twenty years ago. That the Cobb five hundred is the breed of chicken that that we all all eat. It comes from uh, from the egg to the table within forty six to fifty two days. And, you know, that's that's what we're getting at. And if you look at the pictures, you know, of, of the farms where they put them all in and off they go, they sort of grow up really quickly and then they harvest them, but they want you to believe that they're on this, this green on grass. Pasture. It doesn't, you know, but you want to get chicken for, you know, roast chicken for $11 from the supermarket. You want to pay, you know, $2 for a breast of chicken. If that's what you want, that's how it's going to have to be reared to get onto the table. So unless you're prepared to eat vegetables for most of the week and then buy a beautiful old breed farm chicken that's lived on a on a green farm and pay $45 for it, well, you know, that's what mm. we've got, you know. You've either got to realise that, that factory farming is a way of life for, for human beings if they want to buy cheap meat. That's where it comes from. The thing with me is that if, if you think that it comes, all meat comes in a cellophane container with cling film over the top of it and a pretty little label on it, well, that's not, you know, an animal's grown and it gets whacked and blood everywhere and feathers and, you know, it's a gruesome bloody thing. If you spend some time in a, sla- in a, in a slaughterhouse, as I have, it's 
it's brutal. Um, but my my feeling is that if you can't handle that, then don't eat meat. Don't don't pretend that 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 you know I oh, I believe in you know animals live a good life. You know they get killed so we can eat them. And I think if you can't handle that, then you shouldn't really eat meat. There's quite a bit of lip service people talk about. I think I get the sense that everybody thinks that the job of free range and understanding free range is done and it all started and finished with eggs, you know. So they go to the eggs, mm. you know, when they're in the supermarket. And I'm not being I'm not trying to belittle people, but they go to the egg bit and they pick free range, but they don't really know the farm or <laughs> where the chickens are and exactly what free range means for that farm and how many hens. And I think lots of people assume that the job's done. So when they go and buy their chicken and it's normally skinless thighs and skinless breast, yep. there's very little choice now. Well, one of the things that my, my grandmother has been a vegetarian all her life and, and when I wrote the book, uh, Meat, I sent it down to her. She rang me and said, Adrian, I'm so proud of you because I put a big section in there on offal. Um, and she said, you know, when we were kids uh, during the war, all we could eat was offal. That's all we got. And I was really proud to see that in there because if you're going to eat the animal, you know, offal is, is a really important part of it. We should eat everything. It's not just for dog food. And, and you know, I'm not saying that everyone should eat offal, but they should. I'm thinking that it's there, you know, at least be open to it and give it a go. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of heart grilled over some hot charcoal with a little bit of salsa verde over the top of it. I mean, that's what we should be thinking about and being able to appreciate or as I say, you know, don't eat meat at all. Or, you know, maybe we get to a stage where meat is so well looked after, it becomes so expensive, the only place you're ever going to have a piece of meat is in a restaurant where it's looked after and 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 cooked to perfection by a trained, qualified chef. You have your beautiful steak that's you know outstanding, it's expensive, but then you go back home and you have your pasta and you have your simple meats. Mm. Um, you're in dream town there, I think. <laughs> because when you talk about big industrialisation of, you know, of farming, I think Matthew Evans said the smell of ammonia is the smell of money mm. in, 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 in that industrial process. So, and he was shocked by that, going to big, you know, feedlots and couldn't breathe. And what we're talking about is, you know... Intensive agriculture. Intense. I was trying to bit find a polite way for people to understand, you know, how that happens. The concentration of animals is so high the, the smell of urine is almost insufferable. Yep. Versus what they see on a on a free range uh, box of eggs, where the chickens yep. are all running around in a field, because there's not many of those, you know, chickens running around in a field having a good life. No, they don't. They're there. They, they get swept up by by you know by hawks and things and get eaten. And, and the chickens don't want to go outside. You know, the water's there and it's nice and warm, so they want to stay in the barn. Yeah, they're a flocking animal, yeah. so they stick together. Exactly. I love that idea of having a free range farm, and they they worked out pretty quickly that the animals' behaviour because they're a flocking animal, it's just to stick together. So they go, do you want to go outside? I want to go outside. It's dangerous. You going outside? I'm not going outside. It's and cold. You know, yeah. It's cold. There's 3,000 chickens going, I'm not going out there. Yeah. And so they open the doors, nobody goes outside, and they all stay indoors. So it's perfect. So they've got a beautiful strip of green grass outside the... Oh, it's know, mowed every week. It's mowed every yeah. week. But in, but in opposition to that, there are farms that they are that. You know, they've got mobile chicken coops, you know, lots of area to run around. In fact, some of the eggs I buy now... I think the density is something like either 100 or 50 eggs of chickens per hectare. And I go, gee, you need more chickens. They're lonely. Yeah, They've yeah, got yeah. some serious real estate and they're wandering around going, I'm, I'm feeling paranoid about the space. Exactly. You know, get some more chickens in there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's there, are there so, so that any more solutions? Just trying to finish well, that off. Any more solutions to that in, in 
industrial, does it all rely on the on the consumer? Do you think in terms of a for, so, solution? For me, it, it's you know we live in a market economy, and if you really believe that oh, I want I want those free range chickens, I want my my beef to be grass fed and and grow up in a pasture, I want my pork to be free range. Well, then that's where you put your money. You know, buy that stuff. Do a little bit of research. Look for the brands that are doing the right things. You can go to their websites. You can actually, mm. you know, drive past the farms if you really want to get into that side of it and you really want to support those industries. That's what you do. But be prepared to pay a little bit more. And hopefully, which it, it happens, it's happening, um, those farmers that are doing the right thing um, and, and selling uh, meat that's been – or animals that have been prepared or, or grown or reared in a sustainable, healthy environment – uh, they're getting the money, they're getting more successful, and that's where we're going to head yeah. to. And you can see, as you say that, that's where your confidence comes from. And that's where your confidence comes from when it comes to eating meat and being comfortable with what you do. Yep. Oh, exactly. I love it. I love making this series, and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message, because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. Let's, tra- let's drag you back a bit because, you know, having when I first met you, I thought, you know, the idea of the Aussie larrikin, you, you personified that for me. Like, I just thought, this is a cheeky boy, but he's grown up. So what did he look like when he was eight years old? Um, when I was eight years old, I was... Uh... It doesn't be. Pick it up. Red, red, red hair. <laughs> I mean, red hair. Um, you know, sort of a little bit round, a little bit. I was always a bit, you know, crazy at school. I was put up a year at school. My parents, my brother and I, were eleven months apart. So I was put up a year. So I was always a little bit younger than everyone else. Is that because you're a clever? Little sausage? No, or? she just didn't want the two of us together because we were just trouble. Uh, we, we were rat bags when we were kids. We grew up in Malaysia. Um, Dad was in the Air Force and and she said she would she would have strangled us every second day. You grew she, up in Malaysia? See, I never knew that. How yeah. old were you when you came back to Australia? Uh, probably five, six, okay. I think. So we, well, Dad Have you got the, memories of that? I have got some memories and I've been back to Malaysia many times and every time I, you know, the plane lands and you just get that smell of Malaysia, of Kuala Lumpur, just great. And if you go back to Penang, um, I was there a couple of years ago. Amazing. Um, just this, I felt at home. It's something about Malaysia I really, I'm really connected to. They had monsoon drains and, and apparently my brother and I would disappear down the monsoon drains and my mother would spend, you know, trying to find us and she just couldn't keep up with us. And um, so we, apparently we were naughty boys. So she separated. <laughs> and so through school, I always sort of struggled with school. And um, because I was a bit younger and all the other kids were just that little bit older, you wouldn't think it made a difference, but it did. And then um, I was in what way? I was a little bit immature, and and I probably didn't do as well at school that I, as I should have. And then I got to um, I was going to a, a grammar school, and and then halfway through year eleven, it was decided that my services were no longer required. I was running a card game um, at lunchtime. I was running a card game. I was lending money. You know, I'd send it at the tuck shop and just lend money out to guys, and they'd pay me back. You know, twenty cents interest every day. So there were guys, and how, a how old were we? I was probably 
15, um, oh, 14, yeah. 15. And, um, and so I was doing <laughs> stuff like that. And racketeering, I suppose, was the term. Yeah, this is not unexpected. I've never heard this before, audience, but this is not unexpected. <laughs> Keep going. And, and a, a mate of mine, um, he's, he's, um, he lived in the country and he would go to the, uh, to the tip on the weekends when it was closed and knock off all these Playboy magazines. He would send them to me and I would sell these Playboy magazines at school. Um, so I had all this, all this stuff going on. And then, yeah, my services were no longer required. So <laughs> uh, I left school and then I was at home and dad said, you're not sitting on your ass, go and do something. So I went and got my pilot's license at 16. So at 16, I was flying around a plane doing solo. And, and that know, was because of your dad? Yeah, because dad was an airline pilot. So he said, you know, I always loved planes. So I started flying and he said, look, you're going to have to pay for them yourself because they get expensive. So I got a job in a kitchen. And then I thought, oh, I might be a pilot. So um, I had to go back to school. So I re-enrolled in year 11 at the local high school because dad said, you're on your own now. You can do whatever you want, which is probably the best thing he could have done. So I re-enrolled into, into the school. I went up myself and, you know, to the principal and enrolled myself. Where's your parents? Oh, they're, they're, they're at home, you know. And then I did year 11 and year 12. And I did very well at school because I was in the year I was, should have been and probably had matured more and, you know. And you had a vision of what you were going to do. What, what I wanted to do. And so I was I was working in a kitchen to pay for the flying lessons. The flying lessons dropped off and I kept working in a kitchen. So I would go to work every Friday, Saturday, Sunday night while I was going to school. I had money. I'd bought myself a car. And it was a pretty rough area that I lived in. And all my mates were going out on Friday, Saturday nights, taking drugs and getting into trouble. And I wasn't. I was working. So it sort of kept me pretty clean. And then when I finished my uh, politics exam, I uh, started my apprenticeship that night to the horror of everyone because in those days to be a chef was it's not like it is now you know it was hot and smelly kitchens there was no you know you were just going to be a chef but I loved it you know from when I started uh that's what I where I belong in kitchens I belong uh cooking for people that's what I love and I'm very lucky that I was able to find that vocation that that my future straight away at that that early age what was it what was it do you think at that moment because people's idea of you know when you talk to chefs their idea of food changes a lot over the years. At that moment when you're 18 years old, what was it that when you burrow into it was the thing that you absolutely were hooked on? I just love food. I've always loved food. I've been around great food all my life. My father's father, my grandfather, was a chef who was trained at Savoy Hotel in London, Westminster College, Savoy Hotel, and then came to Australia and ran restaurants here. They were also vegetarians, and his wife, my grandmother, was an amazing cook. So they grew all their own vegetables. They ate beautiful vegetarian food. And there was always food was the center of everything on that side. My mother's side is Italian. My grandmother was born in Cairo. Uh, My grandfather comes from the north of Italy. He escaped from the British in the Second World War. They hooked up um, and my parents had, my my mum and my uncle were born in Ethiopia. Then they came to Australia. So this vegetarian French cuisine on one side um, and the other side was Italian, North African, Middle Eastern food. And you put it all together and you look at me, white boy like me, you'd never think I would have had that upbringing. So I was around all this amazing food all my life. We didn't have junk food. There was no cordial in the fridge. There was nothing. It was all, it was all fresh food and it was almost like a snobbery thing. There was never... We never had a burger. We didn't do these things. We had great food. And to me, it just comes naturally, all these different cuisines and just being around food. I just love it. I get up in the morning and you're probably the same, Gary. What's for dinner? Mm. You know, what what am I going to put into my, what am I going to eat? And I don't want to waste it with something that's crappy. I I can't waste that space. (laughs) I want to put something good in there. I want to taste it and enjoy it. To me, that's what food is all about. I, I think about it all the time and not in a crazy way. It's just, I just love it, you know. 
we, we, we'll finish talking here and, you know, we'll start talking about where we're going to eat next and, and what you've eaten recently. To me, that's really, really important. And, you know, along the way, I've picked up some really good cooking skills and I love teaching as well, so I love to pass them on. And to me, all these things come come together as one complete package. That but when I, you're 18, that's not going through your head. I mean, did you... I mean, yes, you've got the love of food and I understand it now. Was there a, an attraction to the buzz or was it a crazy kitchen? Was there something about it that you kind of clicked into and went, this is me? The adrenaline, for sure, but also it's an ordered society. It's a strict ordered society. There's the guy at the top and, you know, everyone has a hierarchy. It's like the army. It's the regimented and there's discipline. If you're good, you get a pat on the back. If you're if you're not, if you muck up, you get a clip around the ear. And in those days, we got clips around the ears. So to me, it was very disciplined and they're the rules. This is what you do. Um, and I love that. It's My dad was in the military. I come from a military background, I suppose. So for me, that was a young man who was just a bit crazy and doing all these, you know, all these, you could, you could do anything to get into that environment, oh, I feel, you know, I feel like I belong. It's, these are rules, these are your orders, off you go, go and cook those steaks for people. I love that, that discipline, that um, organisation, the the feeling of camaraderie, you know, the ranking, the whole thing, the uniform, <laughs> pristine uniforms. Um, I, I'm, I'm a stickler for white uniforms, ironed. You look you know, nice in a uniform. Oh, thank you. I mean, that's not said in a strange way. Uh, but. <laughs> I, I love the uniform. Well, the uniform goes back um, generations. I've got a picture of my grandfather up on the wall there. I've got his, um, you know, and he's wearing the, the fluffy white hat. To me, the uniform's, you know, very important and it must be worn to perfection. Even I stopped wearing the neckerchief years mm. ago, but I remember the neckerchief and the tall hats. And to me, it's really important. That's that's what I love about it. It's it's an ordered society. It's like being in the military and I just love that sort of so thing. So what did you, I mean, obviously your grandfather would have understood, but what did your dad say about you diverting away from your flying lessons and a, <laughs> a career in the air to a career in a, you know, a cellar underneath the ground in a hot, you know, sticky, smoky environment. Well, my dad uh, didn't get on with with his grandfather, with with my so with, with with his father. They didn't get see to eye to eye on a lot of things, and you know, he was dusting off the co-pilot seat, ready for me. You know, you know, had had the ancient badge, you know, ready to go on. So he was horrified. In fact, everyone was horrified, and him in particular, he was very supportive of me and and whatever I wanted to do. He was very good in in, in that way, but he just wanted me to be real clear on what I was getting into. And he he flew my grandfather up from Tasmania to sit down with me and talk to me about the career in cooking that I'd chosen and what to expect. And and my grandfather was great. He said, look, the place you're in at the moment, it's a lovely little Italian place, but you're not going to go anywhere if you stay here. You've got to work here for a year and then move and keep moving until, you know, you find a mentor, people you Mm -hmm. can work with, uh, learn from them and then move. You've got to keep going. And he gave me a few other little tips but it was, you know, when dad, my, my father said to me, so is that what you want? Yes, that's what I want, dad. Okay, off you go. Just be bloody good at it. I remember him saying mm. that, pointing with his finger, just be bloody good at it. And yeah. that's what stuck with me. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? When young chefs ask advice, you know, and I, I borrowed it from somebody else, I don't know who, the idea of if you're going to work hard, work hard in the best places rather it's, than work hard in the crappy places because you're going to be a different person at the end of it. It's a skills-based profession. It's what you can do with your hands, your eyes, your brain, your smell. So you need to pick up the skills. And you're not going to pick up those skills if you're slinging tongs in the back of a pub, you know, <laughs> and you're doing parmigiana day after day after day. You need to challenge yourself. It's it's almost going to university. You're doing your apprenticeship and your early years as a commie, 
You need to go and work in these hard kitchens where you will be flogged and you will work and you will learn and you will learn all the skills that you need to to separate you from the pack that's behind you that have taken the easy route. So if you can if you can learn and and develop your skills and your techniques and if you can build up your skills enough to be able to cook just about anything and to work in any environment, you're going to do well. Because in cooking in, with chefs, it's, it's a young man's job. So the only way you're going to rise up through the ranks and keep on going is if you're bloody good. And I've seen so many of the people I trained with, they don't cook anymore. Yeah. You, you can't do it. And for me, there was no no option. Yeah, probably the majority of people that I thought were going to go somewhere, and many of those have just left and done something else. I remember talking about planes. I remember being on a plane about, you know, 10 years ago and going, didn't you work at the Sofitel? You know, it's and now working as a flight attendant, nothing wrong with that. Perfect. Yep. It's still a social, engaging job and love what they're doing, but very different from working in the kitchen. The kitchens are hard. They're hard places. I think being on the TV stuff has, has made them glamorous. And mm. I suppose I've seen it quite quite often that, you know, you get a young one coming in, I'm, I'm going to start my apprenticeship and then within three years I'm going to write my first book and then I'm hoping to do a TV series and then I'm going to have my own restaurant. And I sit across the room, you know, really? Oh, you've got that mapped out, mm. really? And you know it's never going to happen. It's very, very few people will rise up through the ranks and and be, you know, great executive chefs and, and get into the media. And there's very, very few people that will do it. Most will be just the crud at the bottom that are just, you know, they're your fodder, they're your cannon fodder, I suppose, your, 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 your privates, and that's all they'll ever do. And that's fine. But if you want to get somewhere, if you really want to be exciting, you've got to work hard at it yeah. and you've got to train. It's uh, repetition. I always say to young chefs, aspiring chefs, it doesn't sound very sexy, but it's just repetition. When you have, how do you do that so fast? They'll say, you know, when you're French in a rack of lamb, for example, and you go, when you've done a couple of thousands, thousand of them, yep. you're actually pretty damn good at it. And you stand there, you know, because it is it's just, it's a simple job. It's a fairly mindless job, but in the end, it's just one of a hundred jobs that you got to do in the day. Yep. And your precision and your accuracy, and also, I suppose, the economy of movement just after a a couple of thousand times, just that rule of 10,000, all of a sudden becomes obvious. It's and a muscle look, memory. Bang, 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 carrot. <laughs> they look perfect. You just, you just tap them while you're thinking uh, about something else. And, but that's, and that's, what, that's a skill. It's an amazing thing to have. And I'll often be doing something and, you know, I'll be chopping something with some people around and, and I'll be talking as I'm – I'll be looking you in the eyes as I'm slicing onions really thin and they're perfect, you know, and I'll be looking at you and, and they're like in horror – you're not even looking at your, you know, what you're cooking, but you just get to know it, and, and you can show off a little bit as we do. Um, but you know, it's quite proud that but you've been able to to learn those skills, and and they make a difference to your life. Yeah, yeah. And I'm actually, as I'm getting older, I'm amazed how much I still don't know. Like when I learn something, that I go, I'm 54, <laughs> and I just go, how come I never knew that? How come I went through my whole career and I've been making it one way? Like it could be a recipe that I've never actually burrowed into it, and discovered that thing. A cacio e pepe, for example, you know, which is a pepper and cheese pasta. Okay, right? yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, that that idea of, and I know, I've, and even if I say it, I feel terrible, of reheating pasta or making a sauce in a particular way and then actually realising that you've got to make almost a little paste of the pecorino, that it's pecorino, not parmesan, that yeah. you've, the reason you cook the pasta, not in a big pot of water, but you cook it for three quarters of the time in a big pot of water and then you put it in a shallow 
pan with some, with of, the some of that liquid yeah. for the very reason, just to extract that last bit of starch out of the pasta. And then you rewind a bit more and you go, well, that's why you have a bronze extruded pasta because it's got a rough outside and it's a little floury. And then you get almost a, a slightly thickened sauce before you take it off the heat and you monte that, you know, that you toss that, you know, a creamy kind of bulldog of a cheese into it. And then you go, see, I rewind and I've worked in restaurants where that just gets reheated and then chucked into a... It's ch- cheap-ass pasta that's just... Bit of olive oil, bit of butter. It was butter three and, days ago and, and then, yeah. And you just go, wow, that... And the discovery of that kind of attention to detail, I often think, how did I miss that? But that's what the career is, isn't it? You're always learning. I, I, I do a lot of research. Um, now Catch I, your Pepe for lunch, yeah, by the way. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling hungry. <laughs> that in a steak. How's that? Um, I, I, I look at a lot of YouTube clips and I'm, I'm constantly – it's amazing now with technology what you're able to pick up. I'll do – if I'm uh, researching for Good Chef, Bad Chef or I want to see something different, I'll go onto uh, YouTube and watch the techniques and – I've been making noodles and and breads and and all these different things that I pick up, and I'm just, I, I know nothing. I'm I'm pretty good at what I do, and I do know lots of things in that area, but that's nothing compared yeah. to all of the. It's wonderful, it, isn't it's it? It's great. <laughs> I feel like a little boy again, yeah. you know. And and I'll get excited. I watch someone make a noodle dish, um, or you know, cook something a particular way, and you know the way they'll they'll fry oil and chili, and they'll pour it over the the minced pork that they'll mix up, and then they'll use that in the dumplings. It's a it's the flavour from frying the oil and putting it on the mince. I would never do that, you know, but watching it, I'm going to do it tonight. You know, that's, that's, I love that learning. And that's, I mean, I'm salivating thinking about <laughs> it. That's what keeps things exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I read somewhere, you describe being a chef as a, as a pirate's life, as a lonely life. <laughs> was it a throwaway or what, what was behind that? Yeah. Yeah. Sort of working opposite to everyone else, you know, it's, it's fast and it's hectic and it's crazy and, you're sort of, you know, it's a little bit crazy swearing and carrying on and it's it's like a pirate's life, I suppose. You're you're you're, you're pillaging and, and you're rummaging and you 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 know, you're drinking port and red wine and there's no rules and you know, that it, it is a bit of that. And and often we talk talk about our wives as being the, you know, as um widows, chef widows. Um so yeah, you sort of you go out to work and you come back a week later, you know. Um I suppose that's what it's like. Oh, the, in- the industry's littered, isn't it, with failed relationships and it's tough alcoholism. And I mean, you name it. I mean, I'm smiling as I say. I don't know why. Only because maybe I, I managed to escape most of it. There's a lot of it around, and I see it still. And and you know, it's easy. People think, and it happens all the time with me. I'll go say hello to a table. I'll oh, come and have a glass of wine with me. You know. And, you know, you can be boozing all the time. I don't. I just, I drive my car. So, you know, I have half a glass of wine, you know, otherwise I leave my car. But one of the things my grandfather taught me was always have a glass full of ice, some lemon in there, and soda water. So whenever someone asks you for a drink, oh, sorry, I'm drinking a gin and tonic. Oh, fabulous, you know, and you can go on. That's one of the little tricks. But, yeah, the booze, the you booze. You taught me that one. So your grandfather taught me that one. Well, it's all about passing on skills. I, li- I like yeah. that. Well, that's you- another, another thing he said. He said, you're a tradesman, Adrian. Your job is to pass on your skills. Don't keep them with you. Pass them on. So it's just. There you go. He passed on his gin and tonic trick. I say to the barman now, the first one is a gin and tonic. But just so you know, everyone that I come up for next time is a club soda with lemon. Yep. You and taught me that. And anyone who buys me a shout, if it's coming for me, that's Gary's special drink. It's a club yep. soda with lemon. It keeps yeah. you sober. But it, importantly, that, that is a tool in an industry that is full of drinkers. 
Exactly. I mean, because you're surrounded by it. Surrounded by booze all the time, great booze and people partying. But you're not partying, you're working. You know, and, and I often say to people, well, how about I come to your office on Tuesday at 11 a.m. and I'll bring a couple of bottles of wine and we'll have a cocktail. Oh, no, you can't do that. You know, well, that's what you're asking me to do in a way. But you've got to be nice and friendly, hospitable, and, you know, walk your way around it. Oh, I've got to go somewhere and it's great. I've got a couple of venues. So um, you know, I've got to drive to the other place and, you know, I've got to have a cocktail there or whatever. So I usually get out of it. But one of the things I never do is I never sit down at a table with someone. I always go and say hello, um, have a chat, but I never sit down. As soon as you sit down, that's it, you're done. You're there for the night and you're going to have it. Then you're going to have a glass of wine and you need to accept that. But that's uh, never do that. Always keep moving how, around. How do you think, why do you think people handle the industry totally differently? You've got strategies to deal with those things. It's trial and error, Gary. Is it trial and it's error? trial and error. Is that what it is? It's it's learned by your mistakes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've been a booze hound for, for years, you know, and – you know, I've had issues with it, so I've learned to control it. It's very easy for me to have a drink anytime. And I, I, can, I can drink and keep on going all night. You know, I can pace myself and go all night. So I've learned to control it. I just don't drink during the week. I drive my car and, you know, when I get home, I grab a beer out of the fridge. I've got a fridge in the garage. I'll have a beer and, and you know, that's what I'll do at home. But there were years where, you know, I would be drinking all the time and it just it creates its own issues. So once you learn oh, hang on a second, I've pushed the envelope way too far for way too long, you need to pull it back, Tiger, um, if you're going to be, if you're going to keep on going. Yeah. And you've been an advocate for, you know, mental health in in the industry because you're an advocate for the industry, you're a stalwart in the industry. Is mm. it something you feel strongly about? I, I do. I, I mean, I've, I've um, mental health has affected my family considerably. You know, my father, you know, took his own life. My brother did as well. So it's, it's, I've been around and I've had lots of other friends and family that have had issues with mental health. So you, you never know with people what's going on in their minds, yeah. even though we could be happy and, and healthy, you know, the next day could be a disastrous day. So it's really important, I think, to be able to talk about it and put it on the table so that it's not something that can be hidden. So that you might have the opportunity, if you're open and honest about it, you might have the opportunity to be able to talk to someone and possibly help them. Mm. And that's happened a couple of times with and we, me. And we've had a couple of high profile suicides, people that were, when I say high profile, maybe in the public side, but our friends, you know, the people that we know yep. that unfortunately are not with us anymore in the industry in the last couple of years. And it's brought to light these issues. Do you think that kind of hierarchical, you know, you know, and you said it with a smile, that kind of hierarchical, that military got to fit in kind of kitchen brigade is conducive to being able to talk about issues when they pop up? Is this one of the challenges that the industry is facing, do you think? It's tough because at the end of a shift, um, everyone goes out drinking, you know, in, in the younger years. And the other, if as you get older, um, like when I finish, I, I go home alone. It's very lonely, at the, at, you know, when you're a head chef or the owner of a business because you're not anyone's mate. You're the boss. And, you know, unless you're going out drinking with everyone every night, it, it is quite lonely. And you might have to make decisions that sort of you have to fire people or reprimand people. You have to do all those sorts of things. So I can understand. People think it's it's this camaraderie, and, and, and it is, but it is quite lonely. And, and I find that um, being a head chef of my businesses or being an owner, you don't speak to other chefs all the time. unless And it, it might not be until a charity event. You, you do a charity dinner and you get five or six chefs together and you don't see them for another year. You just, you know, you might keep in touch a little bit, but you just don't see them. So it is quite lonely. So I would understand why people would become have issues because they might not have anyone to talk to. You know, it's just they go home and there's issues there and 
work, there's no one to talk to, and, and they're not really in contact with people because with the hours that we live, that's not a really social sort of life. Mm. Um, you finish at midnight or 11 o'clock at night, there's only drunk people to talk to, so that's the way I think it, it sort of goes about. Yeah, and part of being a younger chef is that, you know, like I used to feel as I climbed the ladder myself, exactly the same way. You know, all the kid, what we would call kids, they're not kids, but they were the younger chefs. They'd all go out following day. They'd go, oh, we went here. We, you know, we went to, I don't know, Chinatown and grabbed some noodles at, you know, one o'clock in the morning and then we went and had a drink because you'd be looking at them in the morning going, you went out last night. You know, yep. come on, yeah. guys, let's, guys and girls, let's move it. But there's a little bit of jealousy there because you go, oh, I got left out of that. I'm not part of the crew. Well, then there's the sicko side where you know they've got a hangover, so you start punishing them, <laughs> pushing them hard. Come on, boys, let's move, you know. And you raise your voice, you know they've got a headache and you make them work harder and harder and scrub things. Well, hopefully they won't do it again. Yeah, well, they, they will, but you just punish them even more. That's but the it's sicko personality side. type, isn't it? I mean, I know that, you know, people choose to drink or they don't choose mm. to drink. Do they choose to drink? I don't know. It's their, It becomes their crutch and then, of course, that affects their relationships in work and outside of work. Or, you know, drink is just one part of it, of course. You turn pro. You know, yeah, you can turn pro and yeah, take it up another level, which is not great. And, th and that exists in the business too. Yeah. I mean, I think on many levels, the industry has changed immeasurably, you know, over the last 10 years and for the, for the better. But it is still, you know, it's still a pirate's life in many ways. It is, it is. I'm, I'm finding it's changing a lot. Um, the hours we're working are a lot less. I've mm. reduced all my chef's hours, um, reduced the shifts just to make it a little bit more closer to the 40, 42, 43 hours. That's what... We generally work now, so yeah, it's changed. I've, we would it was a badge of honor, sixty hours, and it's only Thursday, you know, yeah. and and we would work, but it's not like that anymore. And I think that's enabling people to have a bit more of a life outside of work. Yeah. and I think that is really important. And I think the stuff that's gone on over the last year has, for myself, you know, I've got a garden, I've got a beautiful garage now. I've chopped a heap of wood to burn. You know, these other things are important to do. And, and it's not just about work and being in the kitchen and being a chef. You've got to live a life. Yeah. You've know? you got to think outside, the, outside the, the, the kitchen. And I think that makes you even better when you come back in. Yeah. And I think the opportunity to live a food life. I mean, I think what I've discovered post-restaurants, for example, is that, yes, it, you know, when you, when you have restaurants like you and they're very much part of your identity, when you don't, there's a little period of time where you go, well, what is? You know, people go, well, you're not a chef anymore. And I go, that's funny because I think I'm always going to be a chef. You, know, you, are, you are a chef. That's, that's, I, I trained for 30 years to be a chef, so I think I kind of qualify. But people do that. They go, oh, you're not a chef anymore. And, I, and it's quite a strange thing to go through. But what I think happened for me particularly is that I had time to fall in love with food on lots of different levels, whereas before it was just doing things, getting things done, going through the process. You know, you go, you know, I think if you ask my 22-year-old self, did I love food? I don't think love was a word that I was using at that time. No, you were in regimented society. Oh. I love the kitchen. You know, we go yeah. in, we fish, we bosh, we get it all out. And, yeah. You know, it's uh, the achievement. I suppose with restaurants and yourself, getting out of it, I, I, I've heard a lot of that, oh, I don't have a restaurant anymore. You know, I don't feel like a chef. Shut up. Yeah. I was going to slap you. You got out. You know, you're, you're, oh, you're I still free. feel like a chef. It's yeah, only yeah. other people. What? But I, I have heard that. They get, you know. No. Well, actually, Manu, Manu we had Manu on, on the on the same podcast, he's like that. He's very much, you know, rooted in the idea that he has to be seen as a chef in other people's minds. I go, but we know, like in our little club, we know that we're really good at what we do. Yeah, he's a great cook. He's and what, fantastic. Why cook. do you have to have a restaurant and a, and a venue, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, they're, they're tough businesses yeah. to run. Yeah. 
extremely tough. It's it's your own ego that's that's making you want to do that, and that's silly. You don't run a business on ego. It's a shame. You know, it's it's it's, it's brains. I well, suppose. I think for Manu, it's just because he's French. I mean, it's a <sighs> it's a disadvantage oh, in no. life it's from the, start to finish. Well, they, they make crazy cars. They, <laughs> you know, they got crazy politics. They, yeah, they got a, a country full of <laughs> nuclear reactors. So where are you where are you going now? I mean, you know, we haven't talked. We just talked a huge amount, but we've really covered. You know one or two subjects, which is amazing. Mm. But what happens now with Adrian, because you've, you've written books, you've done television now for oh, 20 years, it must be. You've got La Luna, you've got Bar Bouvier or Bouvier Bar. B- Bouvier Bar and Grill in, uh, in Ligon, Swedish Brunswick. That's, that's, been, that's been incredible because it's, it's flipped what I've done. I've always gone from a restaurant where which, which mostly food uh, and, and, and booze. Now it's a New York style bar, which is probably 70% booze. So cocktails, bar, lots of food, a great food offering. And it's an event center upstairs. So we've got about 100 seats for, for events and a private bar upstairs. So that place has done really, really well. And also bought the building. So, you know, it's I've, I'm really excited about that. But it's been very different changing from food, food, food to, okay, we need to be smart with cocktails and, and it's got a late license and it's a different type of business to run Completely, and I've really learnt a lot by trial and error. But it's been a fantastic thing to um, to be involved in. And the family. I mean, <laughs> you know, I was I was thinking about you know I met Michelle, your wife, in when I first came to Australia. Before I met her. Before you met her, mm. and she was a young apprentice at Burnham Beaches, and had talent. You know, she was one of the bright stars in that place. And it was really funny. And I didn't stay at Burnham Beaches very long. I think I was I hated it. I was there like five months. I come out of London. I'm working in the Dandenongs. You know. Yeah. It was dead as a doornail during the week and busy on Saturday. And then the next time I meet her was when I think I met you. And I went, Michelle. And I remember as Michelle Hoppeter. And then obviously, you know. Uh, it's still Hoppeter. Con- she always said that you were charming. She said the other guys were bastards, but you were charming. I was just treading water. <laughs> <laughs> I was treading, treading water and fixing problems and then when this is beyond me and get out. So having those still part of the... Well, we have we the have, vision, you know, it still expands with Mummin still involved and Michelle is still involved. Uh, Michelle is, she does the books. Yeah. So we keep it nice and tight. My mother did the books originally and she was my business partner for the first year and then I bought her out. Yeah. Um, well, she, she let me the money to start with because no one was going to give me any money for anything. That's how that started. Um, and the three boys. Oh, so that, Rex, that was is, the next question. They're going to be chefs? Well, <laughs> no. Well, people say that all the time. And I wouldn't wish this life on anyone. <laughs> oh, come on. I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. And and you know what? If, if they do decide to get into hospitality, there'll be no surprises. They know all the grits, all the hard stuff that goes with it. They'll know what's what's involved before they get into it. But uh, Rex has just started a business degree at Monash and he works in the kitchen and behind the bar and he's part-time. Rudy's 16, so he's still trying to find himself in life and he's a very lovely young boy. I think he wants to get into uh, photography and film. That seems to be where he wants to go to. And I've got a 12-year-old little Roman who's still my, my little my little baby, even though he's, he's a big 12-year-old. <laughs> he's just 12 years old and, and loving life, playing sport and running around yeah. and so they're, they're, the three boys are doing quite well and they've managed to, you know, survive their father, I think. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, they're good. And I, we live close to work, so I come and go, you know, any time. So we've, we've, every night I would go home and have dinner. So you haven't been work. a distant hospitality dad? No, no. I would have, I'd have dinner nearly every night. I'd be home, even though it might be a quick something and then off I go again. But I've always been at home. And many times with teenage boys, I've got the phone call from Michelle your sons are playing up, so I'm straight back again, um, and I'd sort it out. But when they were young, I would often come home um, and put them to sleep. And Michelle was always 
every time you put them to bed, they're always quiet. When I put them to bed, they're like monkeys and screaming and coming around. And it took her a while to work out. I'd come back with chocolate in my pocket. And so they'd go to bed and chocolate buddy and they'd, they'd behave and I'd go around and keep feeding them chocolate till they all stayed in bed and <laughs> fell asleep. So You know what? It's uh, Even though you say that uh, you wouldn't wish it on anyone, how many people do we know in this business, not just in Australia but all over the world, where their children just somehow, even though they were studying a business degree or a law degree, just find their way into the, in the business because <laughs> it's an addictive thing and they've seen their father grow up and love it and enjoy it and still do it. Yep. So who knows? Who knows? Who knows? And if they do, I hope they do it a lot better than me. Beautiful. And now time for my tips and tricks. And because we got Richo in the studio, I think it's over to him. And you've got a podcast on Listener, which is Cooking with Richo. Can you give us a little taste? Well, the Cooking with Richo is all about teaching you the tips and tricks. And probably the thing that's most important is cooking the perfect steak because we love steak. Mm. And one of the tips to that is buying good meat. Go to a good butcher and buy a good piece of meat. Be prepared to pay more. And then put it on the bench, let it come up to room temperature while you get your grill on, and then salt, plenty of salt. Salt loves meat, meat loves salt. Put plenty of salt all over that meat, turn it over, put plenty of salt on the other side, and then crack pepper. Who doesn't love pepper on it? A little bit of olive oil, rub that in, and then once you've got it in there, it's come up to room temperature, onto the grill, sear it on each side and keep turning it around oh, to keep those to juices in that I steak. love it. And then when it's ready, take it off, let it rest, and then tuck into it with a lovely glass of red. Well, that was a beautiful little snippet from Adrian Richardson. Of course, you can listen to Cooking with Richo on the Listener app or wherever you get your podcast. Richo, thanks for coming into the studio. Absolutely. It's been Pleasure. lovely. We should, we should do this again. Let's do lunch. Maybe we do. Let's the cook next, something. The next, exactly, the next <laughs> podcast is over lunch with a bottle of wine. I love it. Let's do that. A Plate to Call Home is presented by me, Gary Megan, and produced by Dave Swalensky and audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.